Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm going to show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. Did you know that I have a new book coming out all about the personal statement? Go to personalstatementbook.com and get notified when the launch happens for the premed playbook guide to the medical school personal statements. It's available for pre-order now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy your books. This is the Pre-Med Year, session number 273. Hello and welcome to the three-time Academy Award-nominated podcast, The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to the Pre-Med Years. If this is your first time joining us here, thank you for taking the time out of your day to plug us into the car, put us in your headphones, whether you're at the gym, doing dishes, wherever you are at, thank you for taking the time. Today, I have a great discussion. If you are on your pre-med journey, and you are trying to figure out whether or not you want to apply to MD schools or DO schools or both or just one, this is the episode for you. If you are hesitant about applying to DO schools, if you don't know about DO schools, if you don't know about osteopathic manipulative medicine, then this is the episode for you. I spoke to Dr. Daniel Clearfield, who is a DO, family practice doc, who also is trained in sports medicine and OMT, OMM, and he had a great discussion on a forum that we're in together about OMT and how he approaches OMT and how he has been able to add it to his toolbox to be able to help his patients. We're going to dive into his path to being a DO why he decided to go to a DO school, how he applied to both MD and DO, and so much more. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Daniel Clearfield. Daniel, when did you realize you wanted to be a doctor? My uh, my father, he's, uh, he's also a physician. He's a DO. I kind of saw the life that he led. He's, uh, he's one of the big world experts on cholesterol. 
And so he was always doing a lot of talks around the country. He was also a residency director, chair of the medicine department. He was busy. And so I really told myself, I do not want to be a doctor going into college. And so when I went to my guidance counselor in high school and told them, you know, like, I was like, I don't know what I want to do. They're like, why don't you be a doctor like your dad? And I was like, oh God, no, I don't (laughs) want to do that. And then uh, I started into college in mechanical engineering and I did that for a year and a half and then started like realizing okay, these are going to be my peers. These are going to be the people I'm hanging out with. And th- and this is the kind of things I'm going to be doing. And I was like, eh, I need to find something else. And, and I stumbled upon a, um, kinesiology as a major. And I was already working as a personal trainer um, since high school. From I um, got into that from uh, um, some of the guys I worked out with from wrestling and became a licensed uh, personal trainer and found kinesiology. And it was the study of like the body's anatomy, biomechanics, exercise physiology, I just loved all those things. And so I started looking at different paths that I could take into different paths that I could use with that. And I all, and there, you know, a lot of people that were kinesiology majors, they were going to become coaches. They were going to become personal trainers. They were going to do things that I was like, yeah, that doesn't sound too challenging to me. So I started looking at more challenging paths. And one of the definite most uh, challenging paths was to become a sports medicine physician. So that's where I kind of uh, started doing some externships in college. I got to work with an orthopedic surgeon that specializes in sports medicine, um, a primary care sports medicine doctor who later became one of my mentors. And then I, um, and then I also worked with a physiatrist, a physical medicine rehabilitation specialist. And so I was able to kind of get a taste of medicine. And sure enough, even though going into college, it was the last thing I was thinking about, medicine ended up kind of finding its way to me rather than me finding my way to it. You grew up with a, a physician as a father. What was it about going and shadowing and getting exposed to the physicians in sports medicine that that gave you something that watching your dad growing up didn't? Well, my dad never really took work home. So I don't want to say that my dad was a negative influence. What I saw was the effects of medicine on my dad. He came home. He was tired. He would get called in the middle of the night on call. He would have to go into the hospital. So I saw a lot of maybe the negative effects as far as just his lack of presence there at times. And because he was this big cholesterol expert, he was flying around the world a lot. And so he would be gone at times. And so sometimes I had that absentee father. And um, so that, that was, was, those were some of the things that were maybe driving me away from it. I just saw that as without even going in and observing my father in his practice and seeing what he was doing, I saw more of just the lifestyle that was uh, from the home aspect. And that's what was kind of the deterrent. But it was when I was able to do the shadowing uh, experiences and notably with the primary care sports medicine physician. uh, First of all, I thought it was just very cool, you know, just seeing uh, it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just athletes. uh, It's, it was people of all ages that uh, he was treating and they were coming in with various ailments and, you know, osteopathic manipulation was a part of that, but it was just, it was a very neat thing because uh, I was just fascinated by uh, um, notably anatomy, uh, all stuff that kinesiology was involved with, anatomy, biomechanics, exercise, physiology. And I was like, here is a practice where we are directly taking everything that we're learning in college in this kinesiology degree, and we're directly applying that into medicine, into practical use. And uh, still to this day, I think it's pretty funny. I have some friends from my uh, um, kinesiology degree that I speak with, and uh, none of them are really using their uh, kinesiology degree to the extent that I, I am at all. But I, um, I, I loved my major of kinesiology. I thought it was a fantastic major. Many, many pre-meds are uh, biology 
And uh, sometimes just through biology alone, they don't figure out maybe exactly how they want to use biology professionally. But um, I just knew that I had that passion. And I also knew I like to help people. And so I and I also had questions. I had a lot of questions Um, when I worked as a personal trainer. uh, People I became that go to guy at the gym where, hey, I need to work this out. What should I do for this? I hey, I'm trying to get in shape. What can I do for this? But then they would come to me with ailments. They'd say, hey, my elbow kind of hurts. What should I do for this? And there were a lot of personal trainers that would just kind of just throw whatever at them, just like, oh, it's just this and just do this. And I you know, had the humility to say, I don't know. And it bothered me that I did not know. It bothered me a lot. It made me start asking a lot of questions. What's going on with this? I wanted to understand what was wrong with the anatomy, what was wrong, what was causing a, uh, some sort of pathology within that individual and so that's where I started asking a lot of these questions, and that's what made me really start looking into medicine. You had mentioned it. Well, before I go, that it's it's very funny listening to you talk because your background is almost identical to mine. I was an exercise physiology major. I wanted to go into orthopedics and and use the the exercise physiology and and that uh, sort of knowledge of the body to go into surgery. I was a personal trainer in in undergrad and even in medical school. So it's funny listening to you talk. I'm like, this sounds like me. Um, yeah. you had mentioned previously when you were exploring the, the field and medicine, you shadowed both osteopathic physicians and allopathic physicians. What was it about those differences specifically that, that kind of pushed you towards the DO side of things outside of just, Oh, I can, I can treat immediately and, and put hands on. Was there anything else? So some of it, and again, I, I don't want to blanket that all allopathic physicians are a certain way and that all osteopathic physicians are a certain way. But from a consistency standpoint of what I saw, typically when I saw the allopathic physicians, they would more more than typically they would look at the uh, um, they would look at an X-ray, they would look at an MRI, kind of tell the patient what was going on with that, and then just present them their options as far as hey, you can have surgery, you can do some therapy, and it didn't seem like there was just too many options. And then uh, a lot of times the doctor would excuse himself. I would still kind of be in the room with the patient and the patient still had a lot of questions. And I just felt very kind of powerless and and helpless to be able to uh, do anything. And I could just tell that the patient's needs weren't being all met. Um, And again, this is just from working with a couple different individuals that I worked with. I'm not saying that all are. And I know Mm -hmm. several MD uh, um, allopathic uh, sports medicine physicians who are just absolutely fantastic physicians and don't do these type of things. But at the same time, uh, the DOs that I worked with, I just saw more of that behavior modeled of uh, partnering with the patient, sitting down, touching the patient to let, you know, just so that they know that, you know, they're actually uh, um, being listened to, that they're being understood, that their their questions are being answered. And it wasn't even that they were spending so much more extra time with them, but it seemed like the time with them was just a better quality time. So regardless of whether OMT was employed or not, um, it just seemed like there was just a better patient interaction that I was seeing with the osteopathic physicians that um, I w- had the opportunity to get set up with. At the same time, my father specifically, you know, he had helped me kind of find, identify those individuals. So he already knew that, hey, these are, you know, upstanding individuals. These are people that are well-respected in the profession. And I, um, I kind of found the uh, um, allopathic individuals that I worked with on my own, just, uh, just kind of just Googling, you know, sports medicine docs in the area. So, um, but th- that was my experience with it. Did you apply to MD schools or just DO schools? 
I applied through the Texas, uh, was it the Texas Medical and Dental School Application mm-hmm. Service? Uh, and so uh, there was only one osteopathic school in Texas at the time. And I applied to all those schools. So okay. I um, did interviews at both. For a student listening to this who is new to the osteopathic world and, and doesn't know anything, describe in, in layman's terms for a pre-med what OMT is. I did a lot of leadership things through the uh, osteopathic profession, and whenever I tried to compare it to chiropractic treatment, everybody's sphincter kind of just like tightened up because <laughs> we really like to try to keep it separated. But that said, Daniel David Palmer, who is the founder of uh, chiropractic manipulation, he was a pupil of Andrew Taylor Still, the uh, founder of osteopathic medicine. Um, Andrew Taylor Still was an MD who um, was a surgeon, uh, and this was during like Civil War times, and there were a lot of just bad treatments. Uh, he suffered the loss of several of his family members, and so he, you know, the whole uh, um, infomercial, there's got to be a better way. He kind of looked at medicine at the time and said, there's got to be a better way that we can be doing things. And so he started looking in, at the body in a different way, really studying the anatomy, uh, circulation, just how everything's connected. And that's where he came up with doing uh, the manipulation. Uh, it's just a component of what he's doing. But it was mainly a philosophical difference between what was being practiced at that time. And there were several different types of medicine besides just the traditional allopathic medicine, which has been around the longest, that have come and kind of gone. But osteopathic medicine kind of uh, has been able to stay. As far as the osteopathic manipulation, so Palmer uh, from Chiropractic World, he took it in his own direction. He does a lot of the thrusting type techniques, uh, not as much work on the the, uh, the myofascia and not as much to be able to kind of treat diseases. But from Still's teachings came the osteopathic profession, which still works in parallel with the allopathic profession in regards to uh, the type of things that you're being trained with, but you are also additionally taught a different philosophical approach, more of a holistic type approach as far as how to approach the patient. And you're also taught osteopathic manipulation and how that can be a part of being able to help your patients. It's not an absolute uh, as far as that all DOs have to use osteopathic manipulation, but all DOs have been exposed to osteopathic manipulation. So when going through medical school at an osteopathic school, in addition to our routine medical classes that the um, allopathic students are exposed to as well, we would additionally be doing uh, classes in osteopathic manipulation. We had both didactic courses that we would take, and then uh, we would have a laboratory course that we would be involved with one to two times a week where we would practice these hands-on skills. And what was really exciting about it, for one, is that most of the time when you're going through your first two years of medical school, you have like you, you have very little patient contact, if any, uh, depending on the school. But you also don't even really know what it's like to you know touch a patient right from the beginning as far as with osteopathic manipulative medicine. That one of the first things that we learn is how to touch a patient, how to actually, you know, have that, you know, creating that somatic connection where we're actually putting our hands on somebody or we're learning what normal feels like. And then uh, we can learn what pathology feels like as time goes on. And so it was just a, it was a very cool experience to kind of go through that. And uh, once we hit our clinical rotations, I felt like uh, very often many of us are just a lot more comfortable as far as just patient interaction and uh, being able to just go in and just find our flow in the hospital setting and in the clinical setting much quicker than some of our um, allopathic colleagues just because of how much hands-on experience that we've already had. When I talk to students who are trying to figure out where to apply to, 
a lot of them will avoid applying to DO schools because they they don't uh, believe in OMT or they think it's it's not helpful or or they just have no confidence in it. What should a student be doing either pre-applying to try to figure this out or once they've been accepted to medical school and they've only been accepted to a DO school, how do you keep those students' minds open to OMT? Sure. And it's definitely not for everybody. And, you know, especially going through the application process in Texas where um, through the, the TMD SAS application program, we had several people who did not rank TCOM as their first ranked choice when they got into the school. Um, so they ranked it because they didn't want to not rank it, but they kind of trickled into osteopathic medicine. And so I remember I had classmates. And then I, um, after my fellowship, I taught at the uh, that medical school for six years. And so um, uh, we definitely saw those people that just did not have any motivation of getting involved with it. Um, when you're looking at uh, um, whether to go to an osteopathic school or not, there's several people that ha- that want nothing to do with OMT, but they still embrace the osteopathic philosophy. And I think that's fine. I think that's fine. You know, if you know that you want to be a dermatologist, the the use of OMT in dermatology is their use. I know there's some uses, but for the most part, you're not doing it. You know, you're not typically doing osteopathic manipulation in a dermatology type practice. But at the same time, if you embrace the principles and practice of what osteopathic manipulation is about and you want to pay attention to those aspects, if you want to understand how the body is more interconnected and how that can affect disease processes, then I think that's where it can offer a greater advantage to you. Um, So one of the things that I say that uh, the um, profession does that kind of puts its uh, foot in its mouth is there are several individuals out there who are osteopathic manipulative medicine specialists solo. That's the big thing. That's the only thing that they do in their practice is osteopathic manipulation. And many of them are absolutely brilliant with their hand. The things that they can do with their hands to be able to treat somebody's ailment, illness, pathophysiology is just, it's just amazing. But at the same time, when they speak to you about what they're doing it's just like diarrhea is coming out of their mouth. It is just, it's just terrible. It's just, they're brilliant with their hands, diarrhea with their mouth. Uh, they just, I, I encountered several osteopathic physicians who I definitely learned. I consider them to be mentors, but I consider them to be silent mentors because vocally they are only making me dumber, essentially, <laughs> from some of the things that they're telling me. Because the, some of the things they're saying are not evidence-based. Some of the things they're saying are uh, you know, purely uh, their own anecdote. And some people just talk on another, I call it celestial plane, where they're just speaking out of, out of just concepts that we can really comprehend, uh, as far as most people can kind of comprehend. I came from my background of kinesiology, biomechanics, structure, function. And so from a biomechanical perspective, that's how I tried to teach it to the students. And very often during our Minifield Medicine course, I saw after somebody explained something and I could just look at the students' faces. And I said, and I would just kind of bring my little group that I had together of like 20 students. And I would just say, look, who got what they just said? And I'd see like no hands. And I'd say, here's my interpretation of what's going on with this. And I would just go through the anatomy. I would talk about the biomechanics and then I would see light bulbs go on and they were like, Oh, and so I definitely had some, you know, several students. And that's the reason I wanted to become an educator in this. Uh, when I went through my manipulative medicine courses, uh, I definitely saw the value of this treatment of learning how to be able to do this. And I also saw the frustration of many of my classmates 
that were just getting very quickly disenchanted with this uh, profession as a whole because they had to, why do I have to learn OMT? Why do I have to learn OMT to become a doctor? That, that you know, it's like, I, I just came, I just want to be a doctor. I just wanted to go to medical school. This is ridiculous. And so they never got the whole picture and they just became those absolutely just uh, disenchanted physicians that totally turn away from the osteopathic profession. They, if they had an option, they would quickly uh, convert to an MD if given the option. Um, and so that's where I was like, you know, I had a good experience. I really learned my stuff. I did an extra fellowship. So I have further understanding of what's going on with this. And I wanted to go back and really be able to make sure that people aren't getting so just frustrated with the profession, that they see that there is value as to what we're learning here and how it can apply into any field that they have. What are some of the the limitations of OMT? And, and maybe what is one thing that you've treated that somebody might go, oh, wow, you can do that with OMT? I'm trying to figure out as far as limitations versus contraindications. I mean, for one, I say OMT is, it's a treatment. It's an elective treatment. It's nothing that has to, I, I always tell the students, there's no stat OMT emergency. There's never, this person is, you know, they see somebody on the floor and they're like, we need some OMT over here, stat. You're <laughs> never going to have that call. That's never going to be something. It's always an optional thing that we can do that can better help the patient. And so um, there's several different ways that we can use it, but there's certain ways that we can't. For one, sometimes I'm just seeing a certain patient. And to be honest, this person is, I can just tell that this person is fairly crazy balls. This, this is a person who I feel like is a potential liability to myself. And in an individual like that, I'm not going to be doing OMT on them because it's a liability to myself, um, especially in uh, um, the current day where um, inappropriate touch is a highly um, kind of a controversial topic. You don't want to have anything that you do that is considered to be off of the slight kind of standard beaten path. And so with those individuals, I will just uh, um, avoid any kind of OMT. Um, from a sports medicine standpoint, you know, OMT is a procedure and it's an elective procedure. So again, there's no, if I have, if I'm out on the field and there's an elbow dislocation with neurovascular compromise, I have to go ahead and I have to put that back in right then. If I go out there and, uh, um, they injure their back and they want me to work on them, I'm, if they're a minor, I have to have some sort of parental consent before I could do that. And so, um, that is another potential limitation. Um, I've had students say, well, you know, they kind of injured their ankle. Why don't you do some OMT on it? I go, well, I can, but at the same time, uh, you know, I'll have to have their parental consent, need to make sure that everything's kosher before I do work on them because it's a minor. And so I'll have a little bit of limitation with that. As far as um, indications, as far as things that I've been able to do differently with OMT to be able to help people out, um, I mean, there's several different things. I, um, I, I remember uh, my third year of medical school, I was on a cardiology rotation. Uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. I, I was on my uh, um, internal medicine rotation. I, I was uh, doing inpatient internal medicine, and we had a patient who was uh, um, kind of nearing coding. They were in kind of unstable uh, supraventricular tachycardia, and we were doing the routine kind of medicine things that needed to be done. Uh, we were activating the, uh, um, the emergency team. And we were just kind of waiting there uh, for something else to happen. And I, uh, the uh, attending that I was working with, he happened to be a DO. And I asked him, hey, is it all right if I just even kind of feel around the, uh, um, the suboccipital region on the head? Because that's where we learn how to treat the, uh, any kind of uh, restrictions on the vagus nerve that may be possibly contributing towards their uh, condition. 
And he said, yeah, that's fine. I mean, don't do any thrusting techniques or anything like that on them. And so I asked the patient, I was like, Hey, you know, and I mean, the patient was kind of in distress. I was like, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to put my hands on your neck uh, right up over here. I'm just going to feel the tissue, see if there's anything that's kind of going on with it. And I put my hand on there and I remember on that left side, the tissue was just super rock hard. It was just very facilitated uh, um, tissue in the paravertebral musculature. And I did a myofascial release technique on that patient. And so we're waiting, you know, so I'm not doing, you know, we're still doing the standard of care, but we're just waiting. And this patient's heart is just racing away in the uh, um, uh, um, upper 200s. And they're starting to get a lot of chest pain and just feeling distress. And, uh, and then all of a sudden I felt I palpated the release. I felt the tissue just kind of release under my fingers. And right at that moment is where the heart rate just went back into sinus rhythm again. And so maybe the medicine just kicked in or maybe it was my treatment. But I know what I felt. And so I, I wrote that up as a case report because I thought that was a good example of, hey, this was not something that was absolutely necessary, but did it help? Oh, I definitely felt it did. Did it do any harm? It definitely didn't do any harm because I was skilled and I knew what I was doing with this technique. Um, from a sports medicine standpoint, I remember uh, during my residency uh, over in Ohio, we would, uh, um, uh, one of the orthopedic surgeons I worked with, he was a um, DO and he, uh, would cover Ohio University over in Athens, Ohio. And so I would drive down from Columbus to Athens with him and I'd see some of the athletes and they had a uh, primary care sports medicine physician that would also look after the athletes that was local to Athens. And he asked uh, the orthopedic surgeon if uh, he could take a look at this one guy's back. He, oh, he, and he was an MD, this uh, primary care sports doc. And he, he said, hey, can you take a look at this guy's back? I think I'm about to send him for an MRI because uh, his back has been kind of bothering him for like three weeks. And so he, you know, the orthopedic surgeon kind of took a look at him and he knew that I did a lot of osteopathic manipulation. And he said, Hey, Dan, come over here. And he's like, Hey, check him out. See if you can do anything for him. And so I checked him out and I was like, Oh, his rib is like super out of place. And his vertebra were kind of rotated as well. And I said, here, let me try to work on him here. And I worked on him for about two minutes and I got a big articulation and the guy stood up and he's like, Oh my God, that feels like so amazing. He's like, like, and it apparently had been out, um, you know, that had been out of place for approximately three to four weeks. And he had just been super uncomfortable to the point where he wasn't going in for as many plays as he'd like. And so that was another kind of instance where, you know, the allopathic physician in that situation had just kind of run out of options, you know, as far as what to do. Um, and I was able to find other things that uh, were able to help that athlete out at that time. Is, um, I'm sure I could come up with several different things. But, yeah. Yeah. A lot of what you're talking about to to somebody who it maybe is on the fence about OMT, it's it's hard to believe because there's so much subjectivity in OMT with what you feel and what you're doing. Is that part of the reason why there's uh, not a ton of data with OMT because of the subjectivity of of what you're feeling and doing? I, I definitely feel like that's a, a big part of it. It's hard to have a you know, placebo controlled trial where you're really um, evaluating the efficacy of OMT and to standardize how OMT is done. I participated in some OMT research protocols. And when I did my master's degree, the first year that I was uh, working on my thesis, I was trying to do a clinical trial with it. And it was, you know, it was specifically look, and I was my, I was trying to look at ACL outcomes with and without OMT um, as far as post-op ACL outcomes. And it was, uh, it seemed like a simple enough model, but then after doing a lot of research background, I just realized it was going to be very, it was going to be very difficult for me to do a trial like that. 
And the one thing that I can say that uh, osteopathic schools aren't strong with is research. It's something that some schools have gotten a lot better. My father is a big osteopathic researcher. He's done a lot in that field. But I definitely feel that my, a lot of my allopathic colleagues have a better background as far as how to conduct research, how to do clinical trials, how to do bench work type research. And I definitely don't feel that that is an osteopathic uh, um, school's strong point. There definitely are some schools that are trying to get better on that. I know my father over at the Truro University College of Osteopathic Medicine in uh, Vallejo, California. I know he's been very proud as far as how many students have been putting out research projects from there. But that said, it was never that research was something that was taught. But I know compared to some of my friends who went through allopathic school, it was not taught at the same level where we feel comfortable as far as conducting our own research going into practice. And along that, so it's going to be also doing research in regards to OMT, which is a very subjective type thing as far as you, when you're trying to feel for different kind of tissues, when you're looking at different kind of outcomes. Uh, and also part of, you know, OMT is not, it's not, you're, you're not a technician, you're a physician. So, um, you know, if there's a, um, you know, sometimes you're just taught, you feel for this and you might do this, you might do this, you might do that. It's, there's an art of the medicine as far as what you're doing. And so based off of, I might see patient A and patient B, who I both give the same diagnosis, but as far as doing an osteopathic treatment plan, including OMT, I might have two entirely different treatments for them based off of different factors within that individual. And so because of that, that's really hard to standardize that in a research sense. So if you're trying to go to an osteopath, if you're looking at osteopathic school and you're like, oh my God, this is totally unfounded. You know, it's like, what kind of research evidence do we have to kind of support this? It's growing, but that said, it could be stronger. You know, but I, um, one of my favorite research quotes, quotes is that there's never been a double-blind placebo-controlled trial on parachutes, but <laughs> we still use them. And so I, I really like that one because when you're talking about something like OMT, uh, you know, you can only look at research so much before you have to say, you know, there's. I, I think that research has its value in medicine. I think evidence-based medicine definitely has a lot of value to it. But if you only go off of that, that's where you're kind of limiting yourself and you stay close minded to other things. Uh, there's several things in sports medicine right now where, you know, such as the regenerative injection treatments, where doing things like platelet rich plasma, stem cell treatments, these are becoming increasingly used. And even though we have some evolving research, there could be a lot more supportive research out about those. But anecdotally, we're getting really great outcomes. And ultimately, what does medicine center around? It centers around the patient and doing what's best for the patient. And I feel that by knowing how to do things such as OMT, I feel much more capable that I'm able to help patients out. And I've been able to figure things out on certain patients where other doctors have failed. I've been able to offer other treatments where other doctors have not. And so I feel like I have this extra tool in my toolbox at all times that's uh, extremely helpful in, in patient care. For the pre-med who's listening to this, who has their interest now peaked, what should he or she be doing to get some exposure to the DO world? So the best exposure is to find a good mentor, find a good physician, whether it be an allopathic physician, an osteopathic physician, and sometimes it's going based off of recommendations of other, you know, other students. You know, you can find, kind of learn 
what type of physician that you, if you had to kind of say, hey, this is what I'm thinking about, this is the type of medicine that I'm thinking of doing, then trying to find a good mentor in that. Because uh, not everybody's a good teacher, instructor also. Not everybody has that passion to pass along what is kind of going on with them in medicine. Some people are not just disenchanted with the osteopathic profession, but they're just disenchanted with medicine. And so if you shadow with them, then you're not going to have any influence to go into medicine at all. Um, so, you know, I, I get a lot of students that get referred to me and it's through word of mouth because of current medical students are saying, oh, hey, Dr. Clearfield, you should, uh, you should definitely, you know, sounds like you should definitely try to set up something with him because what you're looking at, uh, that definitely sounds like what, um, you know, he does and he could talk about in his practice. So it's about not just finding somebody to rotate with, but finding somebody good who's going to really answer the questions that you have. Because the one thing that is really difficult now, you know, medicine is not as uh, maybe fun of a profession as it used to be. There seems like there's more hurdles and obstacles to deal with than we've ever had before. Um, you know, dealing with insurance companies, all sorts of different healthcare reform that we're dealing with. Uh, electronic medical record, I always say, is a four-letter word, and I always tell any student or uh, resident that's working with me, if you haven't heard me curse today, then you haven't seen me use the EMR, because <laughs> just doing all that is just so frustrating. But that said, you know, if I had to pick again, if I had to go back, I would definitely do this again, because I do love what I do. And so I want to make sure that people who are getting into this are truly about, I want to do this. All right, there you have it. Hopefully. This discussion has opened up your mind into the world of DO. Now, I am an MD. I, I don't have DO training. I don't have OMT training. But I do have a very similar background to Daniel. I was an exercise physiology major. I was going to apply to DO schools way back in 2000, early 2000s uh, when I applied to medical school. Um, but I decided not to because I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon and the stigma was still a little bit too high back then. That was almost 20 years ago. I am that old, almost 20 years ago. So for you right now, no matter what you want to do, no matter what specialty you want to do, if you become a DO, you can do it. So in my mind, as I talk to students about DO versus MD, I said at the end of the day, if you want to be a physician, apply to both. You can do anything you want to do as a DO. You don't have to be sold on OMT. You got to be open-minded. You obviously have to go through the training and learn. You don't have to do it in practice if you don't want to, if you're not sold on it, if you don't believe in it, whatever it may be. But Daniel talked about how helpful it was for his patients. And hopefully one day, it'll be helpful for yours. Don't forget go pre-order my next book, The Pre-Med Playbook Guide to the Medical School Personal Statement. It will be released in paperback form in August of 2018. So if you're applying next year, 2019, as this comes out, you can get it, or later, obviously. If you're applying this year to start medical school in 2019, the ebook version may be out in April, um, but it'll be coming out a little bit later. So if you're still working on your personal statement, you can check it out then go to personalstatementbook.com for more information about that book. If you haven't checked out my interview book, you can do that at medschoolinterviewbook.com. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on The Pre-Med Years. Yeah.